What do you want to call me a murderer for? I've never killed anyone. I don't need to kill anyone. I think it. Believe me, if I started murdering people, there'd be none of you left. Welcome, friends and enemies. Welcome to Exploring Evil. As always, I'm your host, Jeremiah, with special writing and research assistance from Kayla Miller. If you like the show, give it five stars and write a review, and you can really help us by word of mouth on social media. Tell all of your friends and enemies about us. Tonight's show is about a killer dentist. Whatever time zone you're in, let's explore some evil. It was a cold, dark evening on November 3rd, 1977, as two men in a sports car make their way down a windy gravel driveway to an old farmhouse in rural Illinois. One man was dressed in a suit and tie with a briefcase, and the other, a big husky man in jeans and a sweatshirt. The well-dressed man tells the other to wait in the car, this will only take a minute, He walks up to the house and gently knocks on the door. A man answers, and the man in the suit introduces himself as a representative of the farmer's union. Arthur Gusweil invites the man in and introduces him to his wife, Vernita. The man in the suit pulls out a gun and orders the couple to the floor and murders them, execution style. Paramedics and police eventually made it to the old farmhouse, but Vernita was already gone, and her husband was soon to follow. Crime scene technicians soon arrived to process the house for evidence. Madison County Sheriff's Department detectives arrived just after the ambulance left and took over the investigation. Detective Bob Hertz noted that the house had been ransacked and torn apart. To his trained eye, it appeared like a burglary may have been interrupted and the Gusweils were shot by a burglar. The detectives weren't able to uncover anything they thought would point to the killer. The DA and the detectives knew they were going to need some luck to catch the killer or killers on this one. Illinois State Police Detective Dennis Kuba remembers the fear that gripped the community as there was no rhyme or reason and a random murderer was on the loose. The police received hundreds of phone calls, but most were just worried residents with little or no information that was useful to the investigation. Their son, Ronald Gusweil, was devastated, but he was able to lean on his wife for support. But there was no sign of anything out of the ordinary. In South St. Louis, a dentist named Dr. Glennon Engelman works out of a small office treating a relatively small customer base. It was said that he was a mediocre dentist, but was cheap, and his blue-collar clients couldn't afford much better. He kept a tight circle of friends in the area. One of them was Mrs. Barbara Gusweil, 
daughter-in-law of the murdered Gusweil couple. Ronald Gusweil would be a rich man after he collected his inheritance just as she had planned. But the plot would thicken as Engelman and Barbara had a plot twist in store. Engelman had a rocky relationship with his third wife, Ruth. She was spending money faster than he could make it, and his practice wasn't exactly thriving. But Engelman also moonlighted as a serial killer. Madison County authorities were still baffled in the case of the murdered Gusweils. Nothing seemed to fit. Detective Hertz lamented that he worked on the case for up to five weeks, spending 18-hour days, and was still in the same spot as day one. He was frustrated, to say the least. The only people who benefited from the deaths were the Gusweils' two sons, but there was no connection there. Ronald Gusweil inherited a quarter of a million dollars, or $1.5 million in today's money. His wife, Barbara, had taken out life insurance policies on him for $160,000. Barbara had been taking out life insurance policies behind Ronald's back and forging his signature on applications for months. Now, it was time for phase two of Engelman and Barbara's plot. March 31, 1979, a year and a half after his parents' murder, it was Ronald's turn. He went to work, as always, at an oil refinery. Barbara had also gotten Ronald to name her as his sole heir in his will. On Ronald's death, Barbara would be over half a million dollars richer. The dentist would be paid $50,000 for killing Ronald. Engelman and an accomplice waited in Gus Weil's garage for him to return from work. When Ronald got out of his car, Engelman shot him and then hit him several times in the head with a sledgehammer. He took Ronald's wallet and watch and put them in a bag with the sledgehammer and then wrapped up Ronald's body in another plastic bag. Barbara mopped up the blood haphazardly with towels as Engelman and his accomplice drugged the hefty 6'2", 260-pound body into the back seat of his own car. Barbara was supposed to wait a few hours before calling the refinery to check on her husband, then check hospitals, then call police in the morning. Engelman's accomplice Peter Handy followed Engelman and Gusweil in Gusweil's car to a seedy motel in East St. Louis. They placed Gusweil in the back seat, and the goal was to make the murder look like a robbery gone wrong. Engelman put condoms in Ronald's back pocket to make it look like he was seeing a prostitute. The next day, Barbara reported her husband missing, and the police bought her story hook, line, and sinker. Three days later, a maintenance man spotted a body in the back seat of a car and called police. There was no ID on the body, but the license plate led to Gusweil. They thought it may have been stolen, but found that a missing persons report had been made on Gusweil and his description matched that of the body in the car. Police found no evidence in the car aside from fingerprints belonging to Gusweil and his family. The police thought that Gusweil had been out cruising for prostitutes and had fallen victim to street crime that East St. Louis is so famous for. 
But Madison County DA Donald Weber said he thought that the murder of Gus Weil's parents had to be linked, and Ronald didn't fit the profile of a man who would be cruising for prostitutes in East St. Louis. He conceded that there was no evidence to link the crimes, though. Inexplicably, an inmate confessed to the murder of Ronald Gusweil, saying that his girlfriend lured Gusweil to a motel for sex. They were going to rob him, but he fought back and the inmate shot him. The Illinois police closed the Ronald Gusweil murder case. Engelman found himself in debt to a local dental lab as he struggled with taking impressions of teeth, and the lab decided to start charging him each time they had to redo dentures and partials. Sophie Barrera ran the lab and had grown tired of having to spend extra time on each set of dentures. She had been pressing Engelman for payment, but he was angry and refused to pay. Since he refused to pay, she sued him. He had been expecting his payout from the Gusweil murder, but instead got a summons from Barrera. But he decided he wasn't going to go to court. He was going to take care of Barrera himself. He went to work on a homemade bomb. January 14, 1980, Sophie Barrera leaves her dental lab around 5 p.m. She got into her car to drive away, and the bomb went off, sending shockwaves all the way to Engelman's office down the street. You could see the smoke from his office. Now, he thought, there will be no one to collect the debt. St. Louis police responded to the car bombing along with firefighters, the bomb squad, and federal agents. Sophie Barrera had been killed instantly. They noted that shrapnel and body parts had traveled up to a block away from where the blast took place. There had been 21 car bombings in St. Louis over the past two years, and federal agent Bob McGarvey thought it was mob-related. But it didn't fit the pattern. The investigators worked day and night, on and off the clock, and talked about it in their free time, bouncing theories off one another. One agent said it reminded him of a bombing that happened a year ago. They responded to a bombing at a duplex where technicians recovered sticks of dynamite from the backyard, along with a homemade pressure switch and six-volt battery. Only a minor explosion had taken place that scattered the sticks of dynamite. The resident, Sophie Barrera, said she was awoke from a loud noise. She said she thought it was a car backfiring until she got home later and saw the damage. The dynamite was faulty, and that's why there was just the minor explosion. The day after the first bombing, investigators spoke with Barrera and learned that a dentist named Glennon Engelman owed her money. Agents interviewed Engelman, but he had an alibi that he was doing his charity dental work, and he checked out. At the crime lab, Harold Mesler was able to link the two devices based on identical triggering mechanisms. Engelman was put back on the suspect list, and Agent McGarvey thought that a bomb may have been Engelman's way of settling his debt with Barrera. The agents decided to pay Engelman another visit at his office and asked him for an interview. When he arrived at the station, he refused to answer any questions, be swabbed for explosive residue, or submit to any other type of test, and requested that he be released or to have an attorney. Agent McGarvey described Engelman as arrogant and self-assured and thought that he was smarter than everyone else in the room. But they had to let him go. Engelman made an attempt to misdirect agents and told them Barrera had an ex-employee who was upset about his hours being cut and they should check him out. 
Engelman was also able to provide an alibi for January 14th by showing the officers a page out of his appointment book, and it checked out. The agents interviewed Sophie Barrera's ex-husband, who said he never knew of a disgruntled employee and that he and his ex-wife were once friends with Engelman. He said over 20 years ago, Engelman was suspected of being involved in an unsolved murder. In what was described as a hit-and-run behind a St. Louis art museum, Engelman is suspected of shooting and running over James Stanley Bullock. Bullock was a Union Electric clerk and was the second husband, unbeknownst to him, of Edna Bullock. After his murder, Edna received $64,000 from life insurance policy that today would amount to over half a million dollars. Her first husband was the killer dentist, Glennon Engelman. He was investigated in the murder, but there was no physical evidence. Edna turned around and invested some of the life insurance money in Engelman's dental practice. Police decided to interview Engelman's latest ex-wife, Ruth, with whom Engelman had a son. She didn't want to talk because she was afraid she would be Dr. Engelman's next victim. She was afraid, but authorities assured her that she would be protected no matter the outcome of the case. She decided to cooperate. She told the police that Dr. Engelman had told her about several murders he had committed. They wanted details, and she said Engelman had threatened her life. He said that when his son reached the age of 14, he didn't need his mom anymore, and Engelman would kill her to get the boy if necessary. She said she divorced him because she was convinced that he was a murderer, and she was scared for her life. In 1976, she said Engelman came home in the middle of the day and began to take off his muddy clothes and told her he had just killed a man in a quarry in Pacific, Missouri. The victim, he said, was Peter Halm. He said he made it look like a bunch of target shooters did it. Halm's wife, a former dental assistant of Engelman, was set to collect what would amount to $271,000 in today's money on a life insurance policy. Engelman was to get 10000 in which he needed to pay his taxes. McGarvey met up with St. Louis police officer John McCready to find out if it was true about the shooting in Pacific, which McCready affirmed. Paul Hom had been shot, and his wife, Carmen Miranda Hom, collected the life insurance. With no leads, the case had gone cold. Carmen told police they were on a walk when a shot came out of nowhere, and she didn't really know what happened. She showed police where he'd been shot, and there was a cross of duct tape up against a rock wall about ten feet above the spot where Peter had been hit. Police thought that someone was firing at the cross from a distance as target practice. They found a rifle on the scene with a bolt action and a telescopic sight. There was no evidence to prove that Peter Holmes' death wasn't just an accident in spite of their suspicions. Ballistics showed that the rifle they found was the one that shot Hom. There were no fingerprints on the rifle, and they ran a check on the serial number, showing that the gun was stolen. They did a background investigation on Peter and Carmen, and found that Carmen had checked herself into a hospital over her grief. Her brother was a close friend of Dr. Engelman's and acted as her handler after the incident. Police found out that the couple had been heavily insured within six months of Peter's death, which was suspicious. 
McGarvey asked McReady if Glenn and Engelman ever showed up in the investigation, and McReady said Carmen listed Engelman as a former employer on a job application. Ruth's story checked out. Detectives wanted to speak more with Ruth, and they invited her to a hotel to question her further. She remembered another death in 1962. She said Engelman had a niece named Sally that spent some time living with him. Engelman's sister introduced Sally to a man they had met at a nightclub named Edmund Frey. Sally and Edmund were soon married. Engelman needed help with his new business venture, a drag strip, and Edmund was willing. Engelman told Edmund there was an old well on the property he bought that needed to be imploded, and Edmund allegedly offered to do it for him. According to Engelman, Frey asked if he could give it a try. Everyone took cover, but the charge just went off, killing Frey. After Sally collected on Frey's life insurance, she invested $16,000 in Engelman's drag strip. The death was investigated and determined to be an accident. The Missouri State Highway Patrol filled out a one-page accidental death report relying on Dr. Engelman for the majority of the report. The drag strip went bankrupt and was never completed. Ruth then told the police about another murder involving Barbara Gusweil. Ruth told the police that Barbara's husband was found shot to death and bludgeoned to death in the back of his car. She said Engelman told her they were going to kill Ronald and collect his life insurance and inheritance. McGarvey thought the story was a little sensational, but she had so much detail and the story was eventually corroborated. McGarvey contacted Detective Bob Hertz from the original Ronald Gusweil investigation, and he said they already had a man in prison for the murder that had confessed. McGarvey had to consider that either Engelman was lying to Ruth about the murder, or she was lying to them about the murder. McGarvey suspected Engelman of killing people in five separate jurisdictions over the past 20 years. One problem with the investigation is that most of the conversations between Engelman and Ruth took place while they were married, making them marital privilege, and that made them inadmissible in court. They approached Ruth about having her home bugged or wearing a wire, but she was scared and said that Engelman already thought his home was bugged and phone lines were tapped. She told them he would kill her if he found out. McGarvey told her it would give them evidence straight out of Engelman's mouth and bolster her credibility as a witness. Ruth knew the only way she and her son would be safe is if Engelman was in prison, so she cooperated. Agents wired Ruth's home for sound and assured Ruth agents would be nearby in case of any emergency. McGarvey suggested trying to talk about the Barrera bombing as it was still in the news and to try to bridge that into conversations about other murders. Investigators set up surveillance outside Ruth's townhome on the evening of January 20, 1980. Agents spotted Engelman returning from an outing with his son. Ruth brought up the Barrera murder and Engelman said he had an airtight alibi. He reminded Ruth that even if he had made the bomb, an accomplice could have planted it. With Barrera out of the picture, Engelman said he was $14,000 richer. The conversation began breaking up, and the agents heard a loud scratching sound and soon realized that Ruth's dog had located one of the microphones and was scratching at it. The agents called Ruth's house and told her to get her dog, and she pretended like it was a wrong number. 
After meeting with investigators, Ruth agreed to wear a wire to a restaurant where they would be having dinner that night. The agents decided to focus on Engelman's first alleged murder, Stanley Bullock. They were concerned he would be suspicious if Ruth just brought up the murder out of the blue, so they hatched a plan. They leaked information about the murder to the press, and two reporters showed up at Engelman's office asking questions. Engelman was furious. The press agreed to print whatever stories the police wanted printed to rattle his cage. The next morning, Engelman's picture was on the front page, accused of being a serial killer. That gave Ruth the chance to talk about the murders with Engelman without having to bring it up out of the blue. Agents wired Ruth with a transmitter and set up surveillance across the street from a restaurant that the family was eating at. Ruth asked how Engelman became such an explosives expert, and he indicated that he had learned from a demolitions expert from World War II. He said Barrera knew I was nobody to mess with, but he still hadn't admitted to killing anyone. Ruth had an idea to have the bedroom wired, stating that Engelman often confided in her after sex. The agents were wiring up her bedroom, and the doctor slipped through their surveillance at his office by leaving early that day. He was nearly at Ruth's home by the time they were finishing up with wiring in her bedroom. The agents were literally walking out the back door as Engelman was knocking on the front door. After Engelman left, the agents got back to work installing recorders and transmitters throughout the bedroom. The agents would spend the next few days stationed outside and around Ruth's townhome complex. Far away enough not to be noticed, but close enough to help, if needed. After relations one night, Ruth asked Engelman why he couldn't have just settled things amicably with Barrera. He said the woman deserved to die, but he didn't kill her. He yelled at Ruth that she needed to stop asking so many questions. He said if he found there was a bug in the house, he would come back and rip her head off. He mentioned that he was aware of all the wiring in the house after having installed sound systems and he would know if something wasn't right, but he decided to leave. The agents decided to remove the listening devices in the home, fearing it was too risky and she could get hurt, or worse, if caught. The agents decided to leak information about the Peter Hall murder to the press. Ruth would then talk to him about it on a night on the town. Ruth asked Engelman if the murder victim's wife, Carmen, got a lot of money. Feeling at ease, he told Ruth that he received his cash from Carmen's brother. Ruth asked if Carmen's brother may have skimmed some of the insurance settlement for himself, but Engelman said he wouldn't dare. He said her brother was aware that Engelman had access to a simple hitman who did killings for $1,000. She asked why he had run all of these risky scams, and he responded, Money, 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 money. Ruth was worried that Carmen might talk under all the new publicity surrounding the case. Engelman said they shared a bond stronger than sexual intimacy. He said they were homicidally intimate. It was the admission of guilt agents had been waiting for. The authorities wanted to see if they had enough to prosecute, so they played the tapes for the state prosecutor. The background noise made it difficult to pick out key words, so they focused on the transcripts and a specific line, I have no driving urge to keep getting rid of my fellow man. Prosecutors decided to focus on the shooting death of Peter Hom at the quarry. 
Although the evidence was weak, prosecutors felt they had to move quickly. They knew it wouldn't be safe for Ruth and her son to remain in St. Louis, so they were given new names and placed in the Witness Protection Program. They had to start a new life in a distant city. Prosecutors knew the tapes themselves wouldn't be enough to convict Engelman. They would need direct evidence, the testimony of Engelman's accomplices. The authorities decided to arrest everyone and tell them that Engelman was in jail so they didn't need to fear him and they would be able to come clean for a deal. They arrested Carmen Miranda and her brother Nicholas Miranda, Peter Handy, and Glennon Engelman. They arrested them all four at the same time and kept them separated. It all went down on February 24, 1980. Agents arrested Engelman for the murder of Peter Halm at the quarry. Robert Handy, whom Ruth had implicated in several of the murders, was arrested at his home. Handy refused to talk and said he didn't know anything about anything. Agents hoped for a better outcome when they arrested Carmen Miranda and her brother Nicholas. The police allowed the brother and sister to ride together on the way to the police station, where they refused to talk. But Nicholas told Carmen not to say anything and he would take care of it. Authorities offered Carmen's life for Nicholas's testimony. She would get 22 years but be spared the death penalty. Nicholas said he wanted full immunity for he and his sister. They suspected Carmen and Engelman plotted her husband's murder together, but the prosecutor knew without testimony they wouldn't have a case. He said if they didn't have somebody to flip on Engelman that night, they didn't have a case on anybody. The tapes couldn't be used on Carmen, Nicholas, or Handy, and they weren't saying anything. The prosecutors didn't have a choice. They had to rely on Nicholas Miranda or the dentist might get off scot-free. They gave Miranda immunity to testify against Engelman. Nicholas told the detectives he'd known Engelman for a long time and had been involved in a lot of illegal business dealings with him. He said Engelman's motto was, Always plan your crime from the witness stand back. Nicholas said he heard about his ex-brother-in-law shooting after it happened, and his first thought was that Engelman had done it. He said he had direct knowledge of several murders Engelman was involved in. They then interviewed Carmen, asking her how Engelman got her to plot her husband's death. She said she had known the dentist her entire life and admired and respected him. Engelman trained her and hired her as a dental assistant, but she always had money problems. He suggested that she marry a man to collect on his life insurance, but she said that would take such a long time. He said that the husband may die sooner and unexpectedly, which he had made happen before. He said, just ask Nicholas. Engelman knew how to pick out women that may consider this type of crime and was able to groom them into doing what he wanted. She didn't think he was serious at first, but he was persistent and she trusted him. He told her to marry a man who worked for a big company with insurance benefits. They needed to be a simple person with a good job. After she married Peter Hom, Engelman kept in touch, telling her how to plan life insurance and benefits packages. Just before the couple's first anniversary, Engelman and Carmen did a practice run at the quarry. The next week, she got Peter to go there for a picnic and said she practically had to drag him there. The plan went off without a hitch, and she thought they would never get caught. Carmen didn't take the money. Her brother took it and handled the payoff to Engelman. The prosecutor struggled to gain credibility for his witnesses.
September 1980, Engelman's murder trial starts in Jefferson City, Missouri. Engelman's ex-wife Ruth came out of hiding to testify. The tapes were played for the jury, and she was able to identify the voices on the tapes. Engelman took the stand in his own defense. Upon cross-examination, the prosecutor asked Engelman to explain what he meant by homicidal intimacy when he said it on the tape. Engelman quickly became enraged, and it was easy for the jury to imagine him committing murder. The taped evidence coupled with the witness testimony sealed his fate, and he was sentenced to life in prison. His accomplice, Peter Handy, received 17 years. The dentist was then also tried and convicted in the bombing death of Sophie Barrera, in which he received another life sentence. They believed they could connect Engelman to at least three more murders. They suspected he was involved in the shooting death of Arthur and Vernita Gusweil three years earlier and believed he was implicated in the murder of their son Ronald as well. They already had a man in prison for the murder of Ronald Gusweil, but McGarvey provided evidence that Engelman was the real killer. Sergeant Kuba drove the man who had confessed to the murder scene to have him point out where the car was when the murder took place. He couldn't show them the spot, and it was in fact on the wrong side of the building. He said he'd been forced to confess by a corrupt detective who wanted to advance his career. He said his family had been threatened, and he'd been given the police report to look over. Police suspected that Ronald's widow was involved as she'd collected a small fortune when her husband died. She was also a close friend of Glenn and Engelman. They knew they'd have to make a deal to prove Gus Weil's wife was involved. Enter Peter Handy. The DA offered Handy a deal that he wouldn't face the death penalty if he testified, and the most he would serve is 15 years concurrent with his present sentence. Handy said he was at the dentist office when Barbara told Engelman about who she was marrying, and he suggested that he kill them and they split the insurance money. She knew all of what was going to happen before actually getting married. He told the story about how they shot and beat Ronald and planted his body at a seedy motel. The investigators had no idea until now that Ronald had been killed in his garage, and they went to his home to see if they could collect any evidence. They used luminol, and the garage floor lit up like Christmas. Barbara Boyle was arrested in Florida with her passport on her, and authorities believed she was ready to make a run for it. She was convicted of the murder of her husband and sentenced to 60 years. June 19, 1985. Engelman agreed to plead guilty to the murder of the Gusweils in exchange for not facing the death penalty. Engelman explained that people have different talents, sports, academia, art, and his talent was that he could murder in cold blood without any remorse, and he thought that talent would make him rich. He is suspected in at least two more deaths, but he died in prison in 1999 at the age of 71. We all like to trust our doctors and believe that their morals are beyond reproach and that they have our best interests in heart. But what do we really know about them beyond what we see in the office? Everyone could lead a double life. Dentists and hitmen aren't exactly synonymous. But everyone has a dark side. Next time you're getting a cavity filled, ask yourself, what does my dentist do in their free time? So that's the case of the killer dentist. I hope you enjoyed the story. 
Don't forget to tell all of your friends and enemies about us. You can email us with questions, comments, or case suggestions. Mandy from Colorado wants us to cover a case about Jean Newmaker and her murdered child, and we definitely have that case on the radar. Thanks for the suggestion. You can reach us at exploringevil at gmail.com or leave us a voice message if you use the Anchor FM platform. Special thanks to Kayla Miller for research and writing assistance. Whatever time zone you're in, good morning, good afternoon, and good night from Exploring Evil. The street is my world.